0: To me, if you were to say who's the big winner in this case, it's probably the NCAA because from their perspective, maintaining the amateurism model is a big deal. Although the plaintiffs score a significant victory as well by saying all of these restraints, conditions are subject to antitrust review.
1: You know, people ask all the time, you know, what does Ed get out of this? And Ed is just a total advocate for college athletes. What he saw was a system that was fundamentally unfair.
3: Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court, and my co-host, Bob Ambrosie, is off today. And before we introduce our topic today, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, back in 2009, former UCLA basketball player Ed O'Bannon filed a lawsuit on behalf of the NCAA's Division I football and men's basketball players. O'Bannon challenged the NCAA's use of the images of its former student-athletes for commercial purposes. Later, on August 8, 2014, District Judge Claudia Wilkin found for O'Bannon stating that the NCAA's rules violate antitrust laws. Another year later, on September 30th, 2015, a three-judge panel upheld Judge Wilkins' finding that the NCAA is not above antitrust laws, throwing out the judge's proposal that the NCAA should pay athletes $5,000 a year in deferred compensation. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at O'Bannon versus NCAA, amateurism, antitrust laws, the appeal, and how this impact is going to affect future cases and future athletes. We have a great lineup of guests today. Joining us, we first have Attorney Swathi Bojedla from Housefeld Law Firm out of Washington, D.C. Swathi's career has spanned a wide range of practice areas at Housefeld, focusing most notably on the sports and entertainment, antitrust, and mass torts practice areas. Swathi is an O'Bannon case trial team member, working alongside Attorney Michael Hausfeld, as well as a member of the firm's appeal team. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Swathi. Thank you. And next we have attorney Scott Schneider from Fisher & Phillips out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Scott leads the firm's Higher Education Practice Group and focuses on providing counsel and litigation support on a host of higher education issues with a particular emphasis on institutional policies and handling of allegations of sexual assault and violations of Title IX. He maintains a blog dealing with higher education legal issues at highereducationlawyer.wordpress.com. Welcome to Lawyer Lawyer, Scott. Thank you. Well, Swathi, since you're on the trial team, can we get a quick overview and a kind of a little bit of a broader recap than I gave in the beginning from you, please?
1: Sure. Um, as you mentioned, the case was brought in 2009 by Ed O'Bannon, who is a UCLA legend. He was part of the championship team back in 1995, and his number was then retired uh, at UCLA in 96, so he's a w- very well-known figure. And what had happened was he was living in Las Vegas well after his NCAA career and later his basketball career had ended. He was selling cars at a dealership, and he was at his friend's house one day, and his friend's son was playing a EA basketball game, the NCAA-branded EA basketball game. And his friend's son said, hey, Ed, Ed, come over here. Check this out. So Ed went over, and on the screen was Ed. He didn't have his name on the jersey or anything like that, but it was the same height, same build, bald as Ed is, um, by choice, I should say. And same number, same left-handedness, everything was the same. And, you know, his friend's kid said, you know what's so funny about this? You're not getting paid for this. And Ed obviously did not think that was very funny. So, you know, Ed eventually came to us and said, I don't think this is fair. The NCAA has these rules that say that kids can't get paid for their name, image, and likeness while they're in school or they lose their eligibility, and then they own your image and they can do whatever they want with it. And the case initially started out as a case on behalf of former players and along the way current players were added to the case. And so basically uh, what the case alleges is that there is this, Anti-competitive restraint, where the NCAA and its member schools have a rule in place that says that if you receive any compensation of any kind whatsoever, um, and they define compensation however they want to, and in this case it includes compensation for your name, image, and likeness, the NCAA says that you cannot be an NCAA athlete. So this forecloses student athletes who are coming in from negotiating the terms of their Entire scholarship package, and it depresses the payment to them to zero dollars. And we felt um, that this was a violation of the antitrust laws. And the district court, after five years of litigation, including a three year bench trial, agreed with us. And as you mentioned, the appeals court of the Ninth Circuit just two weeks ago upheld the finding of antitrust liability. So that is kind of the brief summary of where we are in the case right now.
3: Well, Scott, what about Judge Bybee's recent ruling? Where do you think the winner lies here?
0: Well, I think it's a uh, bit of a mixed bag, and, and that's putting it, I think, mildly. Um, I think on the student-athlete side, the Ed O'Bannon side, um, clearly they score a victory, uh, by the Ninth Circuit coming in and saying, "Look, the NCAA's restrictions, number one, in this case, violated uh, antitrust law, but on a go-forward basis, are subject to review uh, pursuant to antitrust law." So that that's a clear victory for um, Ed O'Bannon and the the players. On the other side, from the ncaA 's perspective, um, from the member uh, institutions' perspective, I think you know the big battle here is maintaining the status, the amateurism uh, model, and the the status of student athletes and participants in college ath- athletics not being paid anything over and above. Uh, in essence tuition and and cost of attendance and on that score whether it was a matter of principle, depending on how you read the Ninth Circuit opinion, or just a a failure to basically introduce sufficient evidence to to shoot down one of the NCAA's arguments, the court came back and said, gave to me the NCAA a fairly significant victory, in at least uh, the end result being uh, that the NCAA's amateurism model lives to, to fight another day. So it's a a bit of a mixed bag. To me, if you were to say who's the big winner uh, in this case, from my perspective, it's probably the NCAA because from their perspective, maintaining the amateurism model uh, is a big deal. Uh, Although the plaintiffs score a significant victory as well by saying all of these um, restraints, conditions are subject to antitrust review.
3: So, Swati, what does that mean to Ed O'Bannon individually? Is he going to be able to get any money from his, the use of his name and likeness? And what does it mean for student athletes following Ed O'Bannon?
1: Sure. You know, just to take a step back and talk about what the district court judge did and didn't rule. So the district court judge, Judge Claudia Wilkin, she found this antitrust liability founding and she looked at the issue of amateurism and whether it was necessary to retain consumer demand. And in finding liability for the NCAA, she found that it wasn't essentially uh, enough of a pro-competitive justification at the amount of $0 to justify the demand. In her injunctive relief, she said that there were two things that the NCAA could no longer do. First, it could no longer have a rule in place that forbade schools from paying cost of attendance. And for those of you who are not familiar with uh, what that means, basically cost of attendance is the amount of money between tuition, room, and board, and what it actually costs to attend a university. And that is different from a school-to-school basis. And the second thing she did was say, you cannot have a rule in place that prohibits deferred compensation to athletes in the amount of up to $5,000 a year. And it wasn't to say that they have to pay $5,000 a year. She just said that if they wanted to put any cap on the amount of money a deferred compensation there would be, it would have to be $5,000 or more. So basically setting a floor for what a cap on that type of compensation would be. And as was just mentioned, the Ninth Circuit overturned the latter portion of her injunction. And so... You know, people ask all the time, you know, what does Ed get out of this? And Ed is just a total advocate for college athletes. What he saw was a system that was fundamentally unfair, and he wanted to go in and rectify it. And you couldn't ask for a better class plaintiff for a case like this because this is something that he's incredibly passionate about and wanted to make sure that future generations of college athletes who put their body on the line every week forego immense opportunities, Um, to sell their name, image, and likeness if they weren't subject to these rules, come and play for schools because they really do love to do it. And so, you know, he's not going to get paid any back damage in this case. But, you know, I think if you asked him, he would tell you he's incredibly proud of the case that his name is attached to and will forever be attached to, probably almost just as much as his iconic uh, basketball championship.
3: So, Scott, what's different now in – NCAA athletes as of this decision, what changed?
0: I think Swathi is being humble here. Um, you know one of the things that the NCAA did, I think primarily in response to this litigation was to allow for schools to pay for uh, cost of attendance, and that was prior. Um, to the the ruling uh, both from Judge Wilkin and from the Ninth Circuit, which was, I think, a fairly significant um, development. Look, I I think, and I think this is a fair statement, you know, big picture, the the NCAA um, in this model um, is under assault in a number of different directions. I mean... Uh, A couple of months ago, it was um, the Northwestern unionization case. And, you know, in essence, the the labor board gave, you know, frankly, uh, an odd win to the NCAA by essentially punting on that issue. We had the O'Bannon case. We have the Jenkins case um, coming right down the pipe. Uh, which is yet another antitrust challenge to um, the NCAA model. And, you know, big picture, I think, what has happened is that, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, as more money has come in to college athletics, whether it's from ticket sales but primarily from television and media revenue, that athletes are saying, you know, we want some slice of this. And there has been pressure in a lot of different directions. I've mentioned the labor board and organizing, antitrust, uh, that direction for the NCAA um, to do something and, frankly, to do something outside of the context of litigation to try to resolve these issues. And the only big thing at this point that has been done is, again, that they've allowed now for uh, schools to pay cost of attendance.
3: So, Arthur, do you think this ruling has any effect on the individual school's uh, use of money? I mean, when you compare a school like, let's say, Harvard to uh, University of Texas, it's there's a significant amount of difference in the amount of money that come into those programs. Does NCAA have anything to say about that? Is the O'Bannon case or any of these other antitrust cases eventually going to touch uh, coach salaries and athletic director salaries and the amount of money that flows into these football programs?
1: It's funny that you mention that because uh, about a decade ago, maybe longer, there was a cap on the amount of money that could be paid to coaches and that was challenged and it was found to be a violation of the antitrust laws. And, and that has led to kind of where we are today, where schools compete on all of these different things. You know, there's a whole package that student athletes who are looking at Alabama or Auburn or, you know, Stanford are looking at. And some of that is coach. You know, if you've got Nick Saban, you know, that's really cool. That guy is, on TV all the time. He's a great coach and he properly gets paid a good amount of money um, in a competitive coaching, hiring atmosphere. And, you know, schools compete on stadiums and facilities. You know, the LSU Tigers have a lot, a tiger pen that, you know, when kids are coming to see the school, they can take a picture of that and say, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I'm going to school with a tiger. And, you know, that's kind of an inefficient system that's been built up because what they really are doing is competing for students and one way they could do that in our model is you know with some amount of share of the revenues that are coming in from contracts and I think Scott kind of hit the nail on the head when he was talking about all the money that's in the system and this case kind of bringing attention to that you know the college football playoff just started last year and I believe you know in the first year each year of the contract ESPN sank 610 million dollars and that's all new money. That's money that didn't exist in the system just a year ago. So I think people are starting to wake up and say, hey, maybe this isn't like back in the day when people were wearing Letterman sweaters and going to all their classes and, you know, spending some small number of hours on practice and football games and playing schools that are in the same town. You know, kids are flying across the country on a Wednesday or a Thursday for a basketball game. The system has changed dramatically, and I think the more attention that can be brought to that, whether it's by litigation, whether it's by King Coulter's unionization efforts, I think the better for some kind of systemic change for student-athletes, just so that they are not being exploited and that they can be equal members of the system that's being built on their backs.
3: Thank you. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
2: Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud and is it a difficult process?
3: No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days.
2: We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you,
0: and if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com.
3: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams, and with us today is Attorney Swathi Jedla from the Housefeld Law Firm from Washington, D.C., and Attorney Scott Schneider from Fisher & Phillips out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Before the break, we've been talking about the Ed O'Bannon NCAA case. So let's get back to the high-profile case, just from the concept of the references to the antitrust laws in the opinions. Scott, what subtle message is the court trying to send Uh, the schools and the NCAA about the antitrust laws and its relationship to student payments.
0: Boy, I thought there were some contradictions um, in the opinion. But let me say one thing before uh, we went to break, you'd ask this question. And I wanted to address it. And I, I also want to take issue with Swathi saying Nick Saban is a great coach. As an LSU fan, I think he's a terrible coach. I'm just pointing that out. Uh, <laughs> but you do like that tiger, though. <laughs> yes. You know, you'd ask the question about now are schools, in essence, required to make these cost of attendance payments? And the answer is no. What the Ninth Circuit came back and said is the NCAA, as a matter of antitrust law, can't in essence, bar schools from making those payments. But schools now have discretion as to whether or not they want to make those payments or not. Some schools, I imagine, in smaller conferences, that don 't have the the athletics budgets, for instance, that the University of Alabama might have or the lSUs might have, might make the decision that financially we can 't afford to make that sort of payment and you know if the Jenkins lawsuit, the plaintiffs in that case prevail, you may see a model where if you 're in a big five conference and you 're getting tons of money from TV revenue and all that sort of stuff. The playing field is going to be different for those sorts of schools, assuming that, you know, all the restrictions go away than for lesser-tier schools and smaller conferences. In terms of the Ninth Circuit decision and, and if they're trying to send a message, I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, there is a part of me that, you know, looks at the long play here and I go, you know, slowly but surely you you start to get the sense uh, that the traditional NCAA model is being chipped away, and the Ninth Circuit uh, decision can be viewed, I think, in that vein. That here yet again is another kind of, you know, chip at that boulder. The other way of looking at it is, you know, at least the two-person majority, to me, was in parts fairly strident about saying amateurism, and you know that these student athletes aren't getting paid is precisely what distinguishes college athletics from, let's say, you know, minor league baseball or, or minor league football. Uh, and we think this is an important principle And, you know, no one has demonstrated to us. I mean, the NCAA apparently provided some evidence suggesting that to pay athletes would substantially diminish the interest in college athletics. And at least from the Ninth Circuit's perspective, they said no one has provided us with any evidence contradicting that or suggesting otherwise. So in terms of sending a message, it's it's one of those two. We're going to continue to chip away at this and fundamentally change how this system works, or it was really an affirmance of the uh, the amateurism model.
3: Swati, so, before the break, you had mentioned in response to a question about the involvement of the, the big money in sports. I wanted to follow up on that and see if you, because of your direct contact with the NCAA during the litigation as part of the O'Bannon trial team, do you think or have you any indication that the NCAA is going to be changing its rules in this regard down the road?
1: You know, I can only hope that they would. I think that, you know, from kind of what I've read, you know, for example, Steve Spurrier has said in the past, I wish that I could give these kids some money. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that I'm making this much money and, you know, these kids can't go out and get a pizza at night. Uh, you know, so there, I think there is some appetite amongst coaches and some administrators to find a way to share some of this money. I, I can't imagine that anybody who's in this system and sees how much money is being pumped through it would truly, if they thought about it, have an issue with athletes getting, for example, $5,000 a year in divert compensation. That just, you know, is not a huge amount of money for a school to pay when they're paying their coaches multi-millions of dollars a year, and their assistant coaches are making two hundred to $400,000 a year. You know, so if it's not done through litigation, I do very strongly believe that the current system as it is constituted cannot last that much longer. Just because when you have this much money constantly coming into the system, and as I mentioned, another $610 million a year, you know, where is that money going to go? Eventually, it has to trickle down to the kids. I I just can't see a way where it could not eventually.
0: I'd like to just jump in on that briefly if if i see areas where i see a little bit of flexibility from the ncaa it's in two areas number 1 it is in giving big 5 conference schools more and more autonomy to basically set their own rules outside of the kind of traditional ncaa structure they there, there seems to be, you know, a lot of pushback from the the conferences and the, the member institutions and Big Five conferences to say, you know, in essence, we want to have our own set of rules. Um, and, and frankly, you know, there's more money involved with those Big Five conferences than for the overwhelming majority of um, uh, college athletics programs outside of those conferences. That's number one. Number two, and, and I might be reading way too much into this, but you know set aside whether or not institutions should be paying over and above tuition or, or cost of attendance should they you know, for instance, um, we have a, a football player in Baton Rouge, Leonard Fournette. He's the greatest football player in the country. I love him to death. He's a New Orleans kid. Um, I'm going to take a wild guess that if he could, if NCAA regulations allowed him to, he could probably make a ton of money doing promotions, not getting paid directly from the university, but you know, selling, in essence, his name, image, and likeness and profiting uh, off of that. I'm going to take a wild guess. I don't know if for sure, and I would hate to speak for the NCAA, but I have to think there's some talk within the NCAA and member institutions about should we, in essence, allow this. And recently it sort of bubbled up a little bit when Fournette comes out and he says, I want to sell my jersey to benefit um, south carolina flood victims and the ncaa came out and said yes you know we'll we'll allow you to do that it also sort of came up in the johnny manzel context when he was signing autographs for money and was only suspended by the ncaa for a half of a game but if i had to take a guess those are the areas where if you're trying to figure out reform from within where i go there's real potential
1: i, I think you're right scott because that's a way to grow the pie You know, I'm talking about it on one side of the case where there's a lot of money in the pie that can easily be distributed to the athletes. And what you're saying, and I completely agree with, is there's so much money out there that could be going to students, that's going to nobody right now. And players like Leonard Fournette, for example, maybe they'd want to stay for longer if they can make some money. I know, I think I saw something about Johnny Mandel saying something like, you know, if he could could have made some money on the side selling his autographs, he may have stayed an extra year. And that benefits everybody. I mean, that benefits the schools to have their star players staying in longer and they don't have to make in a decision that's entirely based on money. And, you know, it helps the kids out. If they want to stay in college and make a little money on the side, you know, that would be great for them. What the NCAA rules do now is when somebody like Leonard Fournette, and he maybe, and maybe he's not the best example because he will probably have a lot of marketing power for a long time, but maybe a smaller prime player, this is the prime of their money making, you know, careers. Uh, A lot of them won't make it to the NFL. And to allow them to kind of capitalize on that at the time where they're most marketable is a great compromise position for the NCAA. I think you're absolutely right, Scott, that that should, if if cooler heads prevail, be the next frontier.
3: Scott, what do you think... The NCAA's best argument is in favor of amateurism. Is it really that if the kid's that good and there's enough money in the program, he'll make money later on in professional sports?
0: Well, I think what the NCAA's position is, I mean, there are are a number of principled positions, but I'll, I'll talk about just the economic position is, you know, the way we distinguish our product from, you know, other athletics products out there is... These are kids who are foremost students, all right, and representatives of particular institutions and not mercenaries, and that's part of the appeal of the product and why people are interested in going to games and why people are interested in watching this on TV and that from a product perspective, if you start making payments to it, you diminish in some way, a tangible way, the the product. And the example that I think they would probably point to is, you know, if you make this minor league baseball, right, or minor league football, there is a market for that. It's not lucrative, it's not well attended, and no one seems to really care about it. So from, from the economic standpoint, the NCAA is basically taking the position, I, I think, that, this is an inherent part of what we're offering. This is part of the allure of this product is that these people who are participating, the athletes who are participating, are students. They're not employees. They're not mercenaries. And they have to go to school, and they get to go to school for free, but they don't get paid. And to, to change that would fundamentally change the market.
1: And I think that's interesting because the, the question you've asked is basically exactly what the abandoned trial was about. Um, this is exactly the issue we tried. Is amateurism tied to consumer demand? Is it a valid pro competitive defense? And after a three week bench trial with expert testimony from both sides, Judge Wilkins found that no, it is not. And um, at the level of zero dollars, you know, amateurism is not a valid pro competitive justification for the restraint. And, you know, you mentioned, Scott, a little bit about minor leagues and, and that is an argument that the NCAA makes a lot. But there are analogous examples in the past. For example, when the Olympics decided to allow non-amateurs to compete, everybody had doom and gloom predictions. Nobody's going to watch the Olympics anymore. It's going to be awful. And they did polling, and everybody said, I'm going to stop watching the Olympics. We had this testimony on a trial. And viewership has only gone up. So, you know, it's hard to gauge exactly what consumer behavior is going to be, but If you look at what's happened in the past, it has not been, you know, people say things in polls that they don't mean. It's hard if you're an LSU fan to say, I'm going to stop watching LSU because I'm really mad that the players are getting, for example, $20,000 in deferred compensation. And I think at trial, the University of Texas athletic director, women's athletic director, Christine Plonsky, put it best. She said, you know, if University of Texas had a tiddlywinks team, people would come watch that because it's the University of Texas. And I think a lot of it is is branding and geographical uh, affiliation and all that sort of thing, that's a really special connection that people have to college sport, apart from what's called amateurism by the NCAA.
3: Great. Well, Swathi, it looks like we just about reached the end of our program, and I would like to invite both of our guests, Scott Schneider and Swathi Bohita, to share their final thoughts and their contact information if they'd like to. So Scott, let's start with you.
0: I think it's a um, fascinating issue. Clearly, uh, you know there will be significant developments over the next several years. It'll be interesting. I know the O'Bannon plaintiffs applied for uh, an unbanked hearing from the full Ninth Circuit. It'll be interesting to see if that's granted. I also know that of all the circuits, the Supreme Court uh, takes a particular interest in cases that come from the Ninth Circuit. Maybe there's a chance the Supreme Court takes this one up. In terms of my contact information, best place to get me, if you want to follow me, is on uh, Twitter. And I am Ed Law Dude on Twitter. And you can also reach out to me via email at sschneider at laborlawyers.com.
3: Thank you. Swathi?
1: You know, this is a very contentious subject on both sides. And I have always been strongly on the side that I'm on. I'm hoping that in the next couple of years, the public opinion will continue to turn and continue to see that the current system can't be sustained at the level it's at now. So, you know, my hope is that we'll find a way, whether it's through litigation, whether it's through mediated resolution, whether it's through smart people on both sides just making the right decision for kids and for the schools, that we'll get past this dispute and find a way to let student-athletes get a portion of these huge amount of revenues that are coming to the system, and we'll find a fair way to deal with all of this. If you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me by email. That's S-B-O-J-E-D-L-A at Housefeld.com. And our website is housefeld.com.
3: Great. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. That brings us to an end of the show. This is Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer.
2: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.